Good afternoon, everyone. Oh, wow, we're really having a good afternoon, aren't we? <laughs> it's one of those afternoons. It's because of the end of the summer. It's because school is back this week. Um, good afternoon, everyone. Afternoon. Yeah, yeah, that's better. That's better. That's more summer-like. Um, let's dive into Luke chapter 20. If you have a Bible, keep it open because we'll be moving through it uh, pretty systematically. Everyone loves a good story. So why doesn't Jesus tell more of them? If the goodness of a story is to be measured by the judgment and the response of people who hear it, I'm not sure this is a good story. In fact, I'm not sure this this would rank in any way up there with Jesus' most popular parables. Let's start at the beginning this afternoon and let's go to the two reactions that Luke gives us to this particular parable that Jesus tells. Have a look at verse 16. This is the people's reaction. And when they hear it, their reaction is, God forbid. In other words, they hear it and the response is, Dear God, no. And then the second reaction is in verse 19, which is the reaction of the religious rulers. And their reaction is this. They looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the people. I don't know if you've ever told a story. I think it's probably unlikely where the immediate intuitive reaction of the people to that story is, we need to kill this person <laughs> right now. And the only reason why they don't is because some people um, rather like you. But whatever this parable means this afternoon, the intuitive effect on the people who first heard it was at best shock and denial. And at worst, let's kill him. We got to get rid of this guy. This is the parable, perhaps more than any other parable, that gets Jesus killed. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago um, in a previous talk on the parables, there are all kinds of specific reasons as to why Jesus told certain parables at certain times in his particular ministry. Jesus didn't tell these stories at random, and Luke doesn't record them at random. Sometimes when preachers are telling stories as part of their sermons, they tell a great story and you really like it, but you really don't want the stories over have any idea what it had to do with the thought flow of what they were saying. That may happen over the course of the next 30 minutes. I hope not, but it may. But that's not the way Jesus told his stories. And so if we're going to understand this parable, we need to ask the question, if this is going to make sense to us, not just what does it say and what does it mean, but to ask two preliminary questions. What is it saying, of course, but why is it said now and not elsewhere? What is it about what is going on in this particular context by the time we get to Luke 20 that makes Jesus consider this particular parable so appropriate for this particular moment? Now the thing to keep in mind in terms of the context of this parable is that it comes right in the middle of a discussion and a question about what kind of authority Jesus actually has. Look at uh, Luke 20 verse 2. They come to Jesus in the temple and they say to him, Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? 
And the reason why the challenge is about Jesus' authority is because up to this point, Jesus has been very, very deliberate in the last few days about explicitly making huge claims about the authority that he says he has. Today's Wednesday in the text. On Monday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey with people hailing him as God's appointed Messiah, echoing uh, Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, which says, See Israel, see, your king has come, lowly and riding on a donkey. And even though the Pharisees tried to resist Jesus in that, Jesus said, No, now is the time. It wasn't always the time when Jesus allowed people to proclaim him as Messiah, but this was the time where he allowed them. Now was the time where Israel would see that their Messiah had come. The very next thing that Jesus does as he approaches the city is to weep over it. Why does he weep over it? Because although the whole point of his entry is that people would see, that Israel would see, he weeps over it because they won't see. They won't recognize that their king has come. And the reason why they won't see is because the worship of God and the representation of who God is has been infected. It's hard to see something clearly, isn't it, when your eyes are infected? It's hard to make out the reality of something. But if you cleanse your eyes, then you can see clearly. Now, if there's a spiritual infection in Israel at this point, such that people can't recognize the Messiah, the rightful thing to do would be to cleanse it. That would be the loving thing to do. And that's exactly where Jesus goes next. He goes into the spiritual center of the city. And he cleanses it. He drives out the moneylenders. He drives out the distraction and the misrepresentation that the moneylenders are giving the people in terms of what kind of worship God is actually looking for and what it really means to be in relationship with him. But in doing so, Jesus not only undermines the merchants, he undermines the authority of those who let the merchants in the temple in the first place. These merchants were only allowed to set up their stalls to exploit and confuse people because the priests and the rulers of the temple let them in. You can guarantee that they were profiting out of it themselves. And so in cleansing the temple, Jesus is not just making a statement about those who bought and sold. He's making a statement, a huge statement, about those who were responsible for keeping the temple clean and pure from the misrepresentation that it was now encountering. It's a huge attack to the authority of these religious rulers. It hugely undermines him. And now Jesus doesn't just cleanse the temple, he occupies it. He cleanses it, and Luke says that he now spends the next two days in the temple preaching the good news. It's hard to see the good news of free grace when you have to get to God through all kinds of monetary and systematic and ritual processes. Jesus clears it away and he just preaches the good news and he heals. And the people love it. But now what we have by this stage in Luke's gospel is a spiritual clash of titans over who has authority in the temple. On the one hand, the religious rulers are determined to hold on to their power, their status and their income. On the other side is Jesus claiming himself as God's Messiah, coming in the name of the Lord. 
and at stake is the faith and the worship of people. And the people are beginning to side with Jesus. Now if you were a Pharisee or a scribe or a religious ruler, how would you loosen Jesus' grip and influence on the people? Well, one way that you might try to do it is to undermine his authority in front of them. And that's exactly what's going on in Luke chapter 20. This parable is sandwiched between ways that the religious rulers try to undermine his authority. At the start, they directly ask him to explain where his authority comes from. When that doesn't work, Jesus then tells this parable. But then they come back and they ask him a question about two controversial issues. Politics and religion. Because that never divides people. They ask him about his political allegiance. Jesus, what do you think of Brexit? That might divide a few people. And when that doesn't work, they ask him a theologically controversial question. They're trying to undermine his authority. And at the beginning of Luke chapter 20, they try to do it by getting Jesus to ask a question or to explain where his authority comes from. Where are your credentials to do these sorts of things? We're, we're very clear that you're making authoritative statements here. But where is the source of your authority? And Jesus asks them a question in response. He doesn't fall for the trap. He says, let me ask you a question. John the Baptist, his ministry, his authority, where did it come from? Was it from men or from heaven? And suddenly they're in a quandary. Because if they say that it's from heaven, then Jesus will say to them, well then why weren't you the first to step up and do what John said to do? Wouldn't be very good spiritual leadership to believe that something is from God and then refuse to participate in it yourself, never mind lead the people into it, would it? But then on the other hand, if they say, well, well it's from men, the people believe that John was a prophet. And so it completely undermines them in the eyes of the people. It wouldn't be very good spiritual leadership either if you were convinced that something wasn't from God and yet you refused to stand against it when you saw the people going into it and being led away. And so they try to take refuge in uncertainty. We don't know. And Jesus turns around and says, okay, well then neither am I going to directly tell you where this comes from. So Jesus refuses to explicitly answer this question of where his authority comes from. But then the next thing he does is to turn to these people and in the hearing of the chief priests tell them a parable that implicitly makes the answer to that question clear. And not just makes the answer to the question clear, but tells the people what their spiritual authorities will do with the authority of Jesus because they are so bent on holding the authority for themselves. Jesus tells a parable. Verse 9, he says, A man who planted a vineyard rented it to some farmers, and they would take up tenancy of the vineyard, and they would work it on the owner's behalf, and the owner went away for a long time. Now, as with all of Jesus' parables, what makes this story so accessible to the imagination of the, of the listeners as they hear it is that it's a scenario that they could easily identify with. There were many wealthy landowners in Israel at this time, some of whom lived a good distance from their estates. 
And so they would often lease out their farms or lease out their vineyards to tenant or contract farmers. These contract farmers would have certain responsibilities for cultivating the vineyard. Those responsibilities would be given to them by the owner. They would agree to pay the owner a particular percentage of the produce. But they would also be able to make a living off that work themselves. So the responsibility came with really great privilege. And so here's the idea here. Jesus is saying there is a man who starts a project. He plants a vineyard at his own initiative. And he gets the thing going and he clearly intends that this vineyard will become fully operational and will become a fruitful vineyard that will eventually produce an excellent vintage. But here's the thing. He's not going to do all the work by himself. He's going to allow others, tenants, leased farmers to come in and participate with this work on the owner's behalf and again that was very common in the time. He's provided them with all the resources that they need but he's not going to micromanage them. He's going to give them the freedom to use their skills, to use their knowledge, to use their labor in developing his vineyard on his behalf and he leaves them to get on with it. But the fact that Jesus says that this project is a vineyard is actually hugely significant in Israel at this time. It was significant because very often in the Old Testament, God illustrates his relationship with the people of Israel as a vineyard owner working on his vineyard. That's the metaphor that God often uses for his relationship in developing and cultivating Israel. A landowner plants a vineyard. But here's what the Old Testament said. God planted a people. And he plants them and he gets them going. And his desire is that those people would blossom and would bear good fruit. And would learn to love him. Would learn to worship him. And that their character would blossom with holiness and trust. And that it would be so good vintage that the surrounding nations would come and taste of it and be attracted by it. Throughout the Old Testament, God is saying to his people Israel, I'm cultivating you. I'm caring for you. You are my vineyard. I'm investing in you. I'm putting everything in place that needs to be done so that you have the greatest possibility of bearing the best fruit. But God didn't do all the work himself. He allowed leaders, tenants to come in and participate and help these people blossom on his behalf. Just like this vineyard owner in this parable, God wouldn't do all the work himself with Israel. Because the God of the Bible is a God who believes in delegation. He's the kind of God who, despite the enormity of this task, I mean, just think about this. How do you get people to love God like that? How do you get them to bear the kind of fruit where they trust God, where they have a holy character, where they represent God on the earth in the most authentic and compelling way possible? How would you do that? That's a tough task. Would you give that responsibility over to other people that you were God? 
When I was seven years old, my parents built our family home in Northern Ireland. And of course, once you build a home, you have to furnish it. So while my friends spent their weekends at the park or at adventure playgrounds, I spent probably a good part of a year of my precious childhood being driven around kitchen showrooms, fireplace showrooms, and furniture stores. Still getting therapy to overcome that. <laughs> but there was a particular kind of furniture store in Belfast called Fulton's which was pretty high-end. I mean, we're not talking Ikea here. We're talking pretty high-end stuff. And I can remember every time we went to Fulton's, my mom would get me out of the car, and before we would enter the store, she would stop me. And she would look me dead in the eye with an expression on her face that said, if you want to make it to your eighth birthday, you will listen carefully to what I said. And then she said three words of instruction. And they weren't, I love you. She said this, don't touch anything. <laughs> when we get in here, don't touch anything. And she would grab my hand so tight and barely let it go that I could not move. Now, why would she say that? Well, here's why. Because as an adult, she knew the value and the preciousness of the items in that store. And she also knew that me, as a seven-year-old, would not fully grasp the value of those things. To me, the store was an adventure playground. And the £3,000 sofas was simply an opportunity to practice my wrestling moves. And she knew, therefore, that in my immaturity and carelessness, I had all the potential in the world to damage those things. And she would have to pay the price. And so her solution was to not let me touch anything. Is God like that? Here's my question to us this afternoon. What could be more valuable than a human life made in the image of God, created and planted by God for the ultimate purpose of knowing Him? trusting him and bearing his fruit in their lives. That's value. A real human being who will live forever, as C.S. Lewis says, there are no mere mortals. You've never seen one. Our wives, our husbands, our children, our siblings, our parents, the people we lead in church, our colleagues. People made in the image of God for whom God has a plan to plant and blossom like a great vineyard. And we're so used to just interacting with people that we forget that that's truly what people are. But here's the thing, if God has a project for those individuals, no matter how ungodlike they might seem on the outside, if you were God, would you trust that great project to you, to me, with all of the potential that we have in our selfishness to mess it up and to make the work more hard. And yet God is a God who plants vineyards and starts projects and gives us things in our lives of astronomical value and doesn't say, don't touch anything 
says, participate with me. And this is often the way I think about my marriage. Because in some ways, I often imagine God saying to me, Gareth, here's an amazing vine. Her name's Amy. Amy's my wife, by the way. <laughs> She's got so much potential to bear incredible fruit in trusting me. She's got so much potential. I want her to have this character of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. I'm, I've got a project for her. And that project is she is formed into my very image. One day she's going to stand before me beautiful and bear good fruit for all eternity. But here's the thing. Do you want to get involved in that project? Do you want to play a part? Do you want to participate with me? That's the kind of God we serve. Our spouses are not ultimately our own. The children that we hold in our arms are not ultimately our own. We are not the owner. We are tenants of them. And God has given us an opportunity to say, listen, the value is astronomical. And yeah, we have the potential to make that project mess up. But hey, let's get involved in this project. And because of that level of responsibility also comes a huge problem. Because as much as you can be the biggest human help for God in that project, you can also be the biggest human hindrance. And the way that we become that hindrance is very subtle, but it's deadly, and it's this. It's when we fall into delusion that rather than us existing in their lives to participate with God in His agenda for them, we fall into the delusion that they exist in our lives to help fulfill our agenda. And that is exactly the problem of this parable. Jesus' parable focuses not on the vineyard, but on those who God gives responsibility for developing the vineyard. It's a parable to the people, but it's about the religious rulers. Because here's what Jesus says in verse 10. He says, at harvest time, the owner sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give up some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. Now, the first half of that verse is pretty normal. It wasn't a big thing for owners to come and expect a report, to expect some produce of what they've done. But the second half is absolutely shocking. This reaction could not be more insulting. They could, I mean, this is not just like that they refused the offer and they closed the door of the vineyard and sent them away. They abused the servant. And in so doing, they massively insult the owner. They've not just insulted the servant. They've insulted the owner that the servant represents. The servant is merely a representative of the fact that they don't own the vineyard and they're accountable to the true owner. And yet that's the problem. They want to be the owners. They want to set the agenda. They want to be in control. And at this point, the owner has a decision. What does he do? He has every right to come with justice, to come with judgment, to call the authorities and to destroy these wicked tenants. And he doesn't do it. He sends another servant. 
and they abuse that servant and reject. And then he sends another servant and they abuse, abuse that servant and reject. See, the problem's not the servants individually. It's who the servants represent when they turn up. They do not want to be the tenants. They want to be the owners. They want the control. And in so doing, Jesus is saying this. This vineyard that God planted called Israel. And these contract workers that God allowed to participate in his great project of producing a people who would bear good fruit for him. They've abused their spiritual authority. And they don't want to work on behalf of the owner. They want to be the owners. They want to maintain the control. And yet the owner is patient. He is, a, he is an owner who is slow to anger, abundant in steadfast love. And then finally he makes another decision in verse 13. What will he do this time of this track record of insolence and rejection? Verse 13 says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. The owner decides to send the one who will represent the owner best. Send the one who is the exact representation of the owner, who bears his image. Send the one who is the owner's son and therefore the heir to the whole vineyard project. And although he knows exactly how they've treated his servants. He's prepared to entrust his beloved son into their judgment. And unfortunately it doesn't work. Because here's the response in verse 14 and 15. When, they, when the tenants saw the son, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. That is ultimately what they're after. They want this vineyard to belong to them. And so they threw the son out of the vineyard and they killed him. They know that this is the son and heir. This is not a case of mistaken identity. They kill him on the basis of the fact that his identity is clear. He is the son. It's calculated. They think that if we get rid of the son, maybe the owner's dead at this stage, or maybe it will break the owner's heart so much that finally and forever the vineyard will be ours. And Jesus is making a staggering claim through the parable. Remember the questions all about what is, what is Jesus' authority? Where does it come from? What right has he to do these things to cleanse the temple? And now Jesus answers the question. Because in the same way that the owner of this vineyard project sends his beloved son into the heart of the vineyard to get these wicked tenants to finally acknowledge him, and yet they murder the son in a strategic effort to get ultimate control of the vineyard for themselves. Here is Jesus telling this parable, not just anywhere, but in the heart of the vineyard, in the temple. The owner's son has come into the heart of the vineyard and he's surrounded by all the vines and all of the resources that God has given to cultivate a people who will bear fruit for him in the world. 
That's the authority that he comes with. And yet he's saying the tenants, the ones who are meant to be the greatest help in this project, are so bent on maintaining their own authority that they will kill the son. Jesus was not a victim of circumstance. He knew exactly that this was what they would do. And he knew that they were listening to him when he said this. And so finally Jesus asked the people to judge what the owner's response ought to be. After so much patience, what would he do in response to how they've handled his son? And in verse 15 and 16, second half of 15, they say this. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and he will kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Now Matthew's account of this parable says that the people agreed with this. Actually, it was the people who answered what the owner would do, not Jesus. So there's initial agreement. I mean, it's a no-brainer, right? He's been so patient. At some point, justice has to come. But then, the meaning of that in the context drops for them. They realize, they realize what that means for the priests and the current tenants of God's vineyard that they're currently in in Jerusalem. That God will reject the wicked tenants and will replace them with those who will serve the true owner with faithfulness rather than usurp his authority. And their response to it is, Dear God, no. It rocks them to their core. They are standing in God's vineyard of worship. And all around them, the tenants are there. They're going about their duties. It looks so secure. It looks so stable, so normative. It's all they've ever known. And yet Jesus is saying that they're so bent on their own sense of self-importance that they will reject the very son that God sends them. And God will respond by removing them and replacing them. God's not going to give up on this project of producing a people loyal to him. He's not going to give up on building people, growing people, blossoming people who will worship him and bear his image and bear fruit for him in the world. But he will not leave it in the hands of those who do not want him to be the owner. He will give it to those who will acknowledge his ownership. And one day that son will come into the vineyard and all the people that God has grown and all the fruit that they bear will belong to the son. Because in response to the people's dismay, Jesus finishes this way in verse 17. He says this. If you don't agree that this is what the owner will do, Explain the meaning of this. What is the meaning of that which is written? The stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone. He quotes Psalm 118, a psalm that they would have been familiar with. You know why? Because they sang it as Jesus entered Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But a few verses before that is another verse that says the stone that the builders rejected has become the very cornerstone. And now the metaphor changes. It's no longer a vineyard. It's a building that God is constructing on the earth. And all the symbolism of that, their 
in the shadow of God's great building in the court of the temple. But that building was only a symbol. And as secure as they thought it was, in 40 years' time, it would lie in ruins never to be reconstructed. Because that building was only a symbol of a much greater building, a truer building that God was constructing. And that building wasn't bricks and mortar and religious rituals in Jerusalem. It was people. Peter puts it this way, as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're the chosen people. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession that you might declare or that you might bear the vintage of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But this building needs a cornerstone, as all buildings do. It needs a foundation. And on that foundation, the builders, the ones that God entrusted, would reject the stone Jesus Christ. But it wouldn't matter. He would still become the very cornerstone of the building and the project that God is initiating on the earth. And that makes a huge statement because at the end in verse 18, Jesus says this, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and everyone on whom it falls will be crushed. See, there's two responses that you can make to this stone. You can build upon it or you can be crushed by it. It's hugely significant. What Jesus is saying is this, that all of human destiny hinges on what we will do with the cornerstone that is Jesus Christ. Their rejection of the stone didn't affect what would become of Jesus. It did affect what would become of them. And it's the exact same as us. Because the decision that we make regarding Jesus Christ won't have implications for who he is. That is already established. You don't make Jesus Lord by committing your life to his Lord, whether you acknowledge it or not. It won't have implications for him, but it will have huge implications for us. We can build our lives on it, and we all need to build our lives on something. Or we can be crushed by it. The choice was theirs and the choices are so let me pray father thanks for an opportunity just to think about this parable thanks for your investment in us thank you that we are your building we are your people and lord we pray that we would not be wicked tenants father thanks for the opportunities that you've given to us to participate with you in your great projects on the earth our children our spouses our colleagues people that we lead in this church. Lord, may we be faithful tenants who get alongside the true owner rather than get in the way by trying to remove the owner so that we might have the authority for ourselves in Jesus' name.